It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And for 17 days, Indian workers were trapped under a mountain in the Himalayas. And then yesterday... India is celebrating the successful rescue of 41 construction workers trapped inside a collapsed tunnel for 17 days. The workers were pulled out last night one by one after rescuers completed days of digging by hand. They are reported to be in good condition, which is great news. Samir Hussein, with our partners at the BBC, reports on the massive rescue effort. This moment, more than two weeks in the making. 41 trapped workers finally rescued. An eruption of cheers from workers and onlookers. Samira Hussein of the BBC, she had been covering this for weeks. And yet somehow I never heard. Had you been following this? I wonder how they determine when a trapped in a mine or trapped in a whole story goes international. Day three, definitely local. Day five, statewide, unless West Virginia, then there is a little bit of a higher threshold. Maybe day seven, national, if the nation's New Zealand, somewhere small. But if you're a country like India, biggest population in the world, I guess you got to wait 17 days. What's weird is I subscribe to Trapped Miner Daily, and they didn't even cover it. I guess it's all for the best. If they had gotten more coverage, Elon Musk would have weighed in, calling someone a pedophile. Then there'd be a lawsuit. And we do need the guy to concentrate on the important things in the world, tweeting about Pizzagate, which is also pedophile-related, huh? Weird obsession. And speaking of miners, they got the workers out via a method called rat mining. Rat mining is a technique of digging holes just big enough for the worker to descend and extract thin seams of coal. The lack of ventilation, the lack of safety, did get the method banned by an Indian court in 2014. And then there was the fact that it was performed almost entirely by children, because, you know, got to be pretty small. But the preteen rat miner of 2014 is the hero of today. You never know when you need a former child rat miner. That's why you keep the old traditions alive. It's sort of like you never know when you need a guy from Texas with a collapsible shoulder blade or a billionaire lobbing insults from afar. It's just heartening, I say, to see the world come together so these 41 construction workers could emerge into the open air and begin arguing who's going to be played by Amir Khan. I'm speaking, of course, about the inevitable Bollywood movie, which, like the ordeal, will last 17 days. On the show today, I spiel about the unfriendly topic of so-called friendly fire and who that gets off the hook. But first, Bradley Tusk, venture capitalist, political strategist, philanthropist, bookstore owner, and author of the new book, the new novel, Obvious in Hindsight, Tusk uses his experiences as a campaign manager and a staffer for Mike Bloomberg and a communications director for Senator Chuck Schumer and as Uber's first political advisor to tell the fictional story of getting a flying car company through the political system, wrangling public opinion, and even working around the Russian mob. Bradley Tusk, up next.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Nick Denevito is a fixer, got a bold new disruptive business. He could get it approved city councils, state legislatures, mayors, senators. He knows them and he knows how to play them and he knows how to play them against each other, which depending on details might always not be legal. He's got a really new disruptive service that he's representing, flying cars. And this is the premise of a new novel, Obvious in Hindsight. It's written by Bradley Tusk, who's been on this show before. Bradley is a political strategist, a venture capitalist, and the author of The Fixer, My Adventures in Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Welcome back to The Gist. Yeah, hey, for a second there, as you were doing that, I'm like, shit, am I going to have to like pretend to be Nick? We're going to do the whole interview in character, which I was like, I think I could probably pull it off if you wanted to do that. Well, okay, there's question one. Nick DeNavito certainly has things in common with Bradley Tusk. In fact, DeNavito is an anagram for something like Dente Vio, which means go tooth, and you got the Tusk connection. You're going to tell me that's coincidence? Fine. But he's also uh, a shady, shadier character than I think your self-perception is in real life. I like to perceive that I'm better than Nick in certain ways. Um, look, Nick certainly started out based on me for sure. Um, and then what I found over the course of, of writing the book is all of the characters just kind of evolved into their own entities. Like, f- for example, Joe Navarro, who in the novel is the mayor of New York City, was definitely meant to be Bill de Blasio when I wrote it. By the time I was done, when I would write the dialogue for Navarro, I heard Mayor Daly in my head not de Blasio, in, in part because I think Navarro was too smart to be de Blasio. Mm-hmm. Um, so he became daily. So, you know, I would say that the reality is there's there's some of me in a lot of the different characters and probably a lot of me in Nick, a lot of me in Lisa. I will say that, I don't think give anything away to say that Nick gets in trouble in the book, that my mom uh, quickly was like, why does your character have to go yeah, in, so, in so much trouble? And I was like, well, all right, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about flying cars. Yeah. Okay. So to set the um, set the time frame, I think it's set in the present, yes. but with one with one wrinkle that let's add flying cars to the mix. Mm-hmm. Or were there other rules for the universe? Is it set like six months in the future? Other rules? No, no. I mean, in fact, when I started writing this, it was a couple of years ago, and the notion of flying cars, although there was still, you know, there startups already working on it, but it was much more fantastical. And then as life kind of time went by, they caught up. And all of a sudden it went from being this like, hey, here's a couple of crazy startups working on this kooky concept to like, here are prototypes, here's FAA certification, here's billions of dollars in money being raised. And so it went from a theoretical concept to a much more real concept. And what's interesting in a way is they caught up with autonomous vehicles. So you know, five years ago, if you said, what's gonna happen first? Uh, autonomous vehicles or flying cars, and you gave like 20 to 1 odds, you still wouldn't take the uh, the flying cars. Um, whereas now, in a lot of ways, flying cars are not that far behind. Mm-hmm. But they also, or the uh, character who wants to run the flying car company also insists that they be autonomous, which might be, you know, too much. I'm going to say t- killing two birds with one stone, but we know that birds come back to haunt everyone in this book. 
They certainly do. Um, yeah, so the, the the founder of Flight Deck, which is the uh, startup in the book that is making flying cars, Susan Howard, is in many ways sort of a typical super type A Silicon Valley founder, but with the additional wrinkle that um, she's trying to live up to her mom. Her mom started off as the parking lot king of Reno and then eventually grew that into the parking lot king of the U.S., um, and they're billionaires, and Susan desperately wants to prove that she can be successful on her own, and that causes her to push really, really hard sometimes when she shouldn't. Is that a person, a person that that's based on? Um, it's it's based on an amalgamation of founders that most of the time not the ones in my portfolio. Um, typically speaking, because we invest at a really early stage, um, seed or Series A, so typically we're really making a bet on the founder, and and we're going to be working with this person for usually at least seven years. And so if they're really an asshole, um, like if I met Susan Howard on a, on a pitch call, um, I would definitely not invest. What if the technology was there uh, to the extent that she says it's there? You know, a few things. One is at the stage that we invest, typically the tech for something that advanced isn't there yet. Um, it's just too it's just too expensive to to get there that quickly. But also, look, the stuff that I invest in tends to be startups and highly regulated industries. So companies your, your listeners might know, uh, FanDuel, Lemonade, Coinbase, Roman, Circle, Bird, things like that. These are not deep tech companies. Um, if, if a company has truly, truly complicated tech, we don't invest because I have no ability to really diligence it in a meaningful way. Okay. And so that actually also affects the job that you do. What your value add is, is that you're able to navigate through politics and you're able to get these things approved. But the fact that the tech is understandable and uh, and, and plausible mm-hmm. uh, plays into your strengths. It would be very hard to do what you did, what you do, if the tech were just uh, very fanciful and you couldn't sell it to very practical elected officials. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm gonna have that problem a little bit in real life pretty soon. Where, as you know, we've talked about, um, I'm working on trying to make mobile voting a reality so that people can vote in elections on their phones. We've over the last three years been building our own mobile voting tech. Uh, we're gonna be done with it at the end of this year. We're gonna release it Q1. It'll be free and open source to anyone who wants to use it. Um, but because there has never been sort of a truly, really secure, advanced form of mobile voting before, um, creating that belief that it is secure and that it does work um, is going to be a big part of the, the the lift for me. It's like, for example, if you contrast it, when I ran the campaigns to legalize Uber, Uber is a great advancement on how to get a taxi, um, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's it wasn't that complicated. Advance. Right? It's very yeah. iterative. It wasn't like Travis invented the idea of someone paying you to get from point A to point B, um, and it wasn't even like there weren't already rules and regulations set up around paying someone to drive you from point A to point B. So it wasn't that complicated. But whether it's flying cars or cryptocurrency or AI or um, you know, mobile voting, whatever it is, when you're in these white spaces where there just is no existing regulatory framework, it's a lot more complicated. I think the idea of flying cars is really good for you and the book. I think it works really well on a couple levels. I mean, the cover it lends itself to think about flying cars. Flying cars are a two-word phrase that sparks everyone's imagination, right? 
Um, yep. Also, as you say, the technology is not so far advanced, so it's not teleporting. Then you'd have to do a sci-fi novel. So it's not a sci-fi novel. You don't want to get into that. But also, if it was so mundane, a lot of the tension, you know, getting people to approve it, I think the listener would say, well, what the hell's wrong with these? Or, you know, they might say, oh, it's just a typical scleroticism in municipal government. But that's not exactly the story you want to tell. Well, right. And the reality is I wanted to make it distinct from my real life. So like my day job every day <laughs> yeah. is legalizing these companies one way or another. Right. Um, and like I find You don't it want to frustrate yourself in your fiction. Like, oh God, I'm reliving this nightmare. Yeah. Right. I want to do something that was a, a little bit out there. Um, and also we haven't made any flying car investments. It's a very, very capital intensive business. Um, and the biggest checks we write are typically about $7 million. And so it's just not enough to, to make a dent in it. Um, so I wanted something that would be a little bit outside of the norm, both to make it fun for the readers, but also just to make it fun for me to write. Yes. And so what it does is it's a good vessel to get all of your acumen about being a fixer in there. And we find out Nick's different rules. They're kind of parsed throughout the book. And so I wanted to ask you about a couple of them. Yeah. At one point, he talks about what we need to do is turn your enemies into friends. Okay, I got that. Mm -hmm. And barring that, make them so toxic. So I think we understand that. Okay, you know, vilify them. Yeah. No, he goes further. Make them so toxic, so toxic that their opposition helps. What's a yeah. real life example where you did that? Um, really, really good question. Um, thinking back to, to taxi and Uber, because the taxi guys, it was such a fragmented industry and it was such kind of a rough, low level industry that, that like when they defended themselves or when they attacked us, it, it didn't really hurt us because they were just confirming every stereotype uh, and every argument that we were already making. Another tactic is play municipalities against each other. Los Angeles, Austin, and New York are all in this book. And we get to know about a little bit differences between who, uh, is it a strong mayor? Does the city council have a lot of sway? How many votes are there? Right. Give me an example of doing that in real life. Uh, the tactic you use, the pressure point is you don't want to be the one left out on being innovative. That's one pressure point. But what are some right. other pressure points that a municipality might look over its shoulder and say, ooh, Los Angeles is gaining on me? Yeah, so jobs, right, would would be a real one um, for sure. And look, every tech company, every company has some level of jobs they can put somewhere. It might be a manufacturing plant. It might just be service jobs or a call center or whatever it is. Um, but especially, I remember when I was uh, working in politics in Illinois when I was deputy governor, you know, it was not hard to create jobs in Chicago and in the suburbs, but it was really hard to create new jobs around the rest of the state, which had really suffered a lot of economic depression. And so if a company said, hey, we're willing to come in and create a thousand new jobs in Decatur or Moline or whatever it is, that was really appealing for us. And we probably would have gone out of our way to make sure they had whatever regulatory approvals they needed to do that. Um, or I remember when you know I was working with Tesla, um, when we were trying to get approval to sell directly to consumers on the internet, as opposed to having to go through car dealerships, you know, jobs was a, a, a tactic that we used. Mm-hmm. Take a step back. Take two steps back. Think about when you worked for Senator Schumer. You know there's this idea of uh, the race to the bottom or municipality states uh, vying against each other to offer such good benefits. Sure. But 
in terms of the entire citizenry and body politic, it's not really a net positive. It's just, uh, you know, chasing after different parts of the pie. So I don't know. That's not your job. I know it's not your job to care about the country overall, but do you think that contributes to it? Well, but here's but here's where in real life there has been a reevaluation of that concept. Um, and I think a political normative change as well, which is around stadium financing, right? So, so there was a time where no politician was willing to be the mayor, the governor that lost the Yankees, that lost the Cubs, whatever it was, and they would just be pressured into throwing tremendous amounts of taxpayer money, even though the economists were very clear, like, there's no real gain to the public here, right? Because even if you're keeping the baseball team here, it's it's fungible discretionary spending, so people are spending at the ballpark instead of the movies, instead of the bowling alley whatever it is. So it was really just an ego and kind of comms thing for the politicians, much more so than an economic thing. But over time, interestingly, a few mayors started playing around with the idea. I saw Libby Schaft do this in, in Oakland and Kasim Reed do it in, in Atlanta with the notion of like, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're not going to be held hostage by some billionaire and basically look at it and saying, the people who vote in my primary are really left-wing people who hate billionaires. And, you know, I'll take the risk of being the mayor that lost the Braves, which is what happened to Kasim. But um, ultimately, he won because uh, he, he didn't end up getting pressured to spending hundreds of millions of dollars that Atlanta didn't have into a stadium subsidized that owned by billionaires. Um, and that actually became a political winner for him and he was rewarded for it. Yeah. In uh, Kansas City, they just opened the first female only, not female only, but female dedicated soccer facility. And yep. I said, I will support this if, let me do some research, was it publicly funded? And it was not publicly funded. So I guess I'm one of those, uh, I guess, very liberal primary voters who would punish a politician if they did the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. And look, we, we see this. It's Kathy Hochul, who's the governor of New York, mm -hmm. uh, about a year ago, and she's from Buffalo and directed, I think, $600 million in taxpayer subsidies to the bills for a new stadium and then had to agree to a couple of billion dollars in new spending to the legislature in return for their approval of the $600 million. And she took a beating for it. I mean, politically, it was a loser for her. Now, maybe she felt like it was just so important to her that she was willing to take the hit. Um, but but clearly, if anyone was still not sure about the shifting politics on this issue, um, they have shifted a lot. And, and it's because, and this is one of the real key points of the book, which is every policy output is the result of a political input. Um, I have worked in city government, in state government, in federal government. I've worked in the executive branch and the legislative branch. I've run campaigns. Um, I've seen this from every conceivable angle. I've done it in New York, in Philly, in DC, in Illinois, and all over the country. And I've learned the same thing, which is every politician makes every decision solely based on the next election and nothing else. And they will do what you want in one of two cases. If they believe that doing what you want will help them win the next election, they'll work with you. If they believe that not doing what you want could cost them the next election, they'll work with you. And if they don't think you can impact either in either direction, you're done. You're completely irrelevant. And so, you know, that underlying principle um, is really what drives all the decisions in the book. But it also kind of makes sense when you think about it from a stadium perspective, which is who votes in an Atlanta primary, in an in a Oakland primary, really left-wing liberal people like you, uh, who ultimately, <laughs> you know, don't, um, <laughs> don't want to subsidize billionaires in stadiums. And so, you know, in a weird way, the, the politics of stadiums were discordant with most political reality, which is politicians know exactly who votes in their primary. And the reason I keep saying primary is just because of gerrymandering. Really, the primary is the only election that actually matters. And the decisions they make are meant to appease 
and, and appeal to those handful of voters. Or I'll give you a more real-life example. Recently, um, Amazon wanted to put their second headquarters uh, here in New York City, yep. um, in, in Queens. And when you looked at the polling, majority of the city wanted it, majority of that district wanted it. But turnout in that state Senate primary was like 8 to 10% typically. And Mike Gennaris, who's a just typical smart politician, it's, it's not like Mike was especially evil or anything else, but he understood that the 8 to 10% of people who vote in his primary were really left-wing, hated Amazon, hated tech, hated business, hated Jeff Bezos, and he wasn't going to risk alienating them and risk, you know, a, a challenge from the left. And so he picked one job, his own, over 40,000 jobs, which are the jobs that would have been created by having that project. Obvious in Hindsight is the name of the new novel. It is by Bradley Tusk, venture capitalist, political strategist, and author of The Fixer, My Adventures in Saving Startups from Death by Politics, which tells you what he does. Bradley, thanks again. Mike, thanks for having me. And now the spiel. 12 hostages held in the Gaza Strip were released Tuesday. That brings to 61 the number of Israelis and dual nationals released, and 20 foreign nationals have also been released. Yesterday's hostage release was an add-on from the original plan of a four-day ceasefire. By the time you hear this, there may be 10 more. Now, earlier, Fox News interviewed the aunt of two little boys, aged four and ten months, Ariel and Kafir Bibis are their names. In this ceasefire, they signed an agreement to release all women and children. Tomorrow is the last day, supposedly, of this ceasefire, of this agreement, as it was signed. And there's still no news about my family, if they'll be returned or not. And soon thereafter, Hamas issued a horrible announcement, as NBC describes. So, Morgan, earlier today, Hamas saying that the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old baby named Kafir, along with his older brother, four-year-old named Ariel, and their mother, died in Gaza. They say that they were killed by Israeli airstrikes sometime before this truce began. Now, Now, Hamas has lied about killing hostages before. Israel calls it psychological warfare. Or Hamas may not know the truth, or they just may be mistaken in this case. It's no matter. Whether psychological warfare or not, it's an illegitimate act of war and, of course, a breach of all decency and humanity. But notice how Hamas very much wants the world to understand what happened. That the hostages were killed by Israeli fire. They have said this multiple times about different incidents, and I may be wrong, but I can't think of a time in commenting on the death of Israeli hostages that Hamas didn't say the hostages were killed by Israeli bombs. But of course, as decent moral people, we understand that in no way lessens Hamas's culpability, right? We understand this as smart people who understand the laws in every country. When someone takes a hostage and threatens the hostage's life and has weapons trained on the hostage, the fate of the hostage is under that entity's control. That's where the responsibility lays, legally, morally, in every way. Only there are a lot of people who seem not to realize this. 
I've been monitoring the Israeli, I don't know, resistance in the West on Western media, crafters of anti-Israeli propaganda, or they would say disseminators of truthful reports. And it is a mainstay, I'd go as far as say it's a cornerstone of what they want you to know about Hamas hostage taking, is that the death of the hostages is never Hamas's fault. Here's former New York Times Middle East Bureau Chief and Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges advancing this claim. There is growing evidence that in the chaotic fighting that took place once Hamas militants entered Israel on October 7th, the Israeli military decided to target not only Hamas fighters, but the Israeli captives with them. Hedges is speaking on his show on The Real News Network, a not insignificant YouTube channel with almost a million subscribers. There he interviewed a frequent guest, Max Blumenthal, whose own YouTube channel, The Gray Zone, has over 300,000 subscribers. It is a big purveyor of the anti-Israeli narrative. And lately, all of the headlines on the gray zone have been about how Israel purposefully shoots their own civilians. Right now, on their website, you find the headline, Israeli tank gunner reveals orders to fire indiscriminately into kibbutz report. They screenshot a picture of this member of the Israeli tank company. It's an all-female tank company, by the way. That was the hook for the story. And this soldier is saying... Are there civilians there? He says, I don't know. Just shoot. All right. Seems to support the point of indiscriminate firing. But let me play for you. And it's all in Hebrew, but I'm going to translate the whole clip. So here we go. Are there civilians there? He says, I don't know. Just shoot. I decide not to shoot. This is an Israeli community. She goes on to talk about firing on terrorists, not confirming anything in the allegation about Israel actually targeting other Israelis. Blumenthal, again, on the Hedges program, makes this assertion. According to Yasmin Porat, who had fled the, um, the electronic music festival, which had come under attack, which was held right between Kibbutz Berry and Kibbutz Reim, which also have military bases essentially embedded within within them. It was held on the road between these two Kibbutzim and came under attack. Many captives were taken. This woman, Yasmin Porat, fled to Kibbutz Berry, uh, went into a home with her partner, and then they were then taken captive momentarily by gunmen. And she recounted to Israeli national radio that when the Israeli special forces arrived, they just started shooting everyone, and that most of the captives, were, along with the Hamas gunmen, were caught in the crossfire. Yasmin Parat did say her captor used her as a human shield, so he got that right. She didn't say she was taken captive momentarily. She was held for hours. And she did say the terrorists and captives were both killed in crossfire. And only her specific captor, that one terrorist, surrendered and he survived. Here's her talking in English to CNN. After two hours, the police is arrived. We saw jeeps. Everybody get to, you know, stress. The terrorists uh, put the guns, you know. Shots starting to, to happen between the both sides and it's... One, two, three, and then it's, wow, 100. Killed in the hundreds of shots exchanged between terrorists and soldiers. The facts do not align with what Hedges and Blumenthal say, that Israel was targeting their own civilians. Hamas 
which doesn't go as far as these two American journalists, does try to emphasize the overall point that the Americans also are trying to emphasize that Israel should be blamed always and only Israel should be blamed for killing not just Palestinians, but for killing Israelis. Hedges and Blumenthal ignore that it is so very clearly the case that the death of hostages is the responsibility of the men holding guns to the heads of the hostages, not the forces trying to extricate the hostages from capture. You may not hear this as an argument put forth by respectable officials or the most respectable public-facing members of the pro-Palestinian movement. And I'm going to say that respectable, responsible people who are honestly aggrieved by the horrors of the war might not even know about this crazy sideways argument. And if they do, I'd hope they rejected it. But the narrative really is widespread, and that's why I'm talking about it. I'm not just nutpicking. This is out there, and it's out there for the taking among anyone who wants something easy to reach for. And well-listened to and well-watched shows and podcasts like The Rising, Breaking Points with Crystal and Cigar, and Democracy Now!, Trafficked in This Theory, and a related one. This next one has a little more ballast to it. Haaretz, the Israeli left-leaning newspaper, quoted an Israeli police force official anonymously saying that an IDF helicopter fired at Hamas during the Nova Festival and may have harmed some Israeli attendees of that festival. Then a misleading description of the report was repackaged with helicopter footage of a different incident, and that was viewed online tens of millions of times as France 24 attempted to correct. We have this post by Syrian girl that's been seen over 28,000, uh, 28 million times on X already since it's been published. Uh, the post reads, a breaking, Israel admits Apache helicopters fired on their own civilians running from the Supernova Music Festival. The IDF and police officially deny that helicopter gunfire hit any Nova Festival goers as they were overrun by Hamas taking prisoners. But my point is, why does this need to be said? But my point is... Hostage takers bear the responsibility for the deaths of the hostages they take. We all understand this, except for the many millions whose moral confusion is fueled by their literal factual confusion and vice versa. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson, along with Corey, endeavors to correct any confusion that might befall you, The Gist listener. Michelle Pesca is there, cheering us along, working behind the scenes. Lipson's Advertise Cast runs the ad portion of the show. Want to advertise? Go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeepperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.